Hello and welcome to Saintly Progress, a podcast that looks at the history of Christianity through the stories of some of its most notable figures. This week, we're going to be talking about Saint Alphea, or Alphege, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 11th century and was captured and killed by Vikings in 1012. He is a quite interesting character in his own right, and we know a fair bit about him and his life and career can also show us about the reign of that English king with one of the worst reputations, Ethelred the Unready. Today I will introduce Elphir, talk a little bit about the background, the state of the English kingdom and church around the year 1000, and then we'll look at the life of Elphir and the disastrous Danish invasions which made poor King Ethelred such a laughingstock. First, we should clear out the confusion about Elphir's name. He was an Anglo-Saxon, that is, he lived in England between the first English settlement in Britain uh, and the Norman Conquest in 1066. The Anglo-Saxons spoke and wrote in a language called Old English, which is an ancestor of modern English, but almost entirely unrecognisable. If you want a taste of it, there's some really good YouTube videos of people reading Old English poetry like Beowulf, which I would encourage you to have a look at. There are a few words that we recognise, and it sort of sounds like English, but it is entirely unintelligible. The reason that I'm going on about Old English is that it makes people's names quite tricky to use in modern English. The Anglo-Saxons had four extra letters than we do today, and there are different ways of writing those into modern English. So, for instance, the Old English letter called Ash, which is an A and an E smushed together, is sometimes written as AE, or just an A, or just an E. This means that we have several ways in which modern English to spell and pronounce the names of Anglo-Saxon figures. The character we're looking at today was known as Elfhia, spelled Ash-L-F-H-E-A-H. This is sometimes written in modern English as Elfhia, beginning with an E, and for some reason, when talking about him as a Christian saint, he's often known as Alphage, because Alphia is hard to pronounce. I've put both Elphir and Alphage in the title, but from now on I'm going to call him Elphir, because this is primarily a history podcast, and as a medievalist I like to do things properly. So, let's get on with it. Elphir was a West Saxon monk and priest born in the mid-10th century. He possibly started out as a monk at Deerhurst Monastery in Gloucestershire, and rose to become abbot of Bath Abbey to an important church in the West Country, which was the cultural heart of Wessex. This was a time when England was still fairly new. There had been several separate kingdoms until only about the year 900, of which Wessex was one. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. From Bath Abbey, Elphir was noticed by St Dunstan, the energetic reformer and Archbishop of Canterbury, who promoted him to Bishop of Winchester in 984. In this role, he would have been one of the leading men of the kingdom, and heavily involved in both the government of England and the reform of the church which was going on at that time. More on that also later. In 1005, Elphir was made Archbishop of Canterbury, the most senior churchman in England. In that role, He continued to be a leading member of the royal government and played a major role in dealing with the most pressing issue that confronted England during the reign of Ethelred the Unready, 
the Viking invasions. I feel like the Vikings have been the unmentioned elephant in the room so far in this story, so let's bring them into the picture now. Early Anglo-Saxon England was one of the richest and culturally productive parts of Christian Europe. In particular, the church in northern England produced some of the period's greatest works of art, like the Lindisfarne Gospels, and its greatest scholars, like the Venerable Bede, who, among other things, produced a new Latin translation of the Bible, and Alcuin of York, who was head of Charlemagne's academy in Aachen. Then, in 795, from out, almost out of nowhere, a band of raiders from Scandinavia arrived on the coast of northern England and sacked the famous monastery of Lindisfarne, now called Holy Island. Now, there is a debate about how brutal the Vikings actually were, and there is a legitimate argument to be made that they have really been misinterpreted by mainstream history. Vikings, or to give them their proper names, Danes and Norse, were not only interested in raiding, and were also among Europe's leading traders and explorers. One mind-blown moment from my Year 7 classes last term was when I told them that Viking was really an activity, not a race of people, and that Danes and Norse went Viking sometimes, and went trading other times. But from the point of view of Christian Europe in the 800s, the Vikings were a catastrophe. With increasing ferocity and little respite, for the next 200 years they ravaged coastal communities and disrupted settled states all over Europe. They were responsible for the collapse of central government in West Francia, or France, and almost wiped out England. At that time, England was not a single kingdom, but several. It is traditional to talk of the Heptarchy, or Seven Kingdoms, of Wessex, Sussex, Kent, Essex, Mercia, East Anglia, and Northumbria. All we need to know, really, is that there were several kingdoms of the English in Britain, and they were rivals as much as they cooperated. This meant that they were not able to stand united against the Viking invasions, which got increasingly worse. In 869, a force of mostly Danes, known as the Great Heathen Army, arrived in Britain. For the first time, the Vikings were looking to conquer, not just raid. They conquered Northumbria, then East Anglia and Mercia, and would have taken control of all England if it were not of the famous victories of Alfred the Great. He was the king of the West Saxons, or Wessex, basically England south of the River Thames, and he started the fight back against Danish rule in England. He defeated the Danes and divided England with them, using a diagonal line from London to Chester. Everything south of that line was West Saxon, everything north of that became known as the Danelaw. That area saw heavy Danish settlement, and the population in northern and eastern England became a hybrid of Danish and English. This is one of the reasons for the difference between northern and southern English accents today. Over the next few decades, the descendants of Alfred the Great conquered the Danelaw from the Danes and made it part of the West Saxon Kingdom, which eventually became known as Englaland, or England. For our purposes today, we need to remember two things about this whole process. The first is that there remained a large Danish population in England. The second is that the old English church, which had been so prominent, was almost entirely destroyed, particularly in the north. Famous churches in northern England fell into disuse. 
several bishoprics ceased to exist altogether, as bishops were killed and no one appointed to replace them. As well as being about actual sackings of churches and killings of monks, this was also about land, which was the principal source of income in the Middle Ages. The landholdings that the church had built up in the north were all seized, and these could not all be returned when the West Saxons conquered the north from the Danes. This meant that, as well as building up England's military defences against Danish invasion and knitting their new kingdom together, the West Saxon kings also needed to reorganise and rebuild the church in England. What happened has been described as a reformation, achieved largely due to a partnership between King Edgar the Peaceful and his chief counsellor, Dunstan, the Archbishop of Canterbury. We know a little more about Dunstan than about Alfir, the subject of this episode, so I'll describe Dunstan a bit, because Alfir probably held a similar position. Dunstan was one of the great ecclesiastical politicians of the Middle Ages. He combined the roles of churchman and royal councillor very well, as many medieval people did. Bishops were often among the leading men in the kingdom. They owned large estates, because kings and nobles often gave lands to found new church communities. So they were rich and powerful landlords, and, in, and this entitled them to sit in the king's council, which in Anglo-Saxon England was called the Witan. The other thing about bishops which made them powerful was that they often controlled the literate parts of government. Monks and priests worked as royal secretaries, record keepers and tax collectors. And kings at this time were working out that a literate government is very useful indeed. Alongside all this, many medieval churchmen were highly devout people who promoted learning, devotion and spirituality within the church. These two things, the political and the spiritual, combined in people like Dunstan and also Elfir, the subject of today's episode, to produce powerful figures who dominated church and state. Dunstan's chief legacy was to revive monasticism in England. In other words, he brought back monasteries, which are residential communities of people who take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, who we know as monks and of course nuns, their female equivalent. Lots of people today assume that all medieval clergy were monks. They weren't. Most clergy were what historians would call secular clergy. That is, ordinary priests who lived in ordinary society could be married and did not have to follow all the rules that monks did, not unlike Protestant ministers today. But there was a movement in the European church at the time to make more of the church monastic, that is, to found more monasteries and promote monks to positions of power and influence within the church. There were sound spiritual reasons for this. Many felt that the church was becoming corrupt and worldly, and it needed to return to a more simple and pious state in order to do its important job of praying on behalf of the rest of society. But there was no doubt also a political motive behind this. As we will see, monasteries could form powerful institutions within kingdoms. They had strong links with each other and could help kings establish that more organised, literate government I was talking about earlier. And this is where Dunstan and Edgar come into the story. Dunstan was influenced by monastic revival in France and Germany and wanted to bring about a similar thing in England. He got his people into other positions of power, appointing two close allies, also monks, as Archbishop of York and Bishop of Winchester, 
the two other most important positions in the English church. At that time, it was Winchester, not London, that was the capital of England. And so Bishop of Winchester was probably the most important position other than Archbishop of Canterbury. One of these loyal followers that Dunstan promoted up the ranks into the leadership of the English church was a West Saxon monk called Alfia, who we're talking about today. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, a sort of yearbook of the West Saxon court, introduces Alfir in the year 984, telling us that he was sometimes called Godwin. It is possible that he had a given name and a new name that he had adopted when he became a monk. If that is the case, my guess would be that Godwin was his real name and Elfir was his grander-sounding official name, but who knows. As I said earlier, he started life as a monk at Deerhurst and went on to become the Abbot of Bath Abbey and possibly also Glastonbury Abbey. Then, in 984, Ethelwold, the loyal supporter who Dunstan had installed as Bishop of Winchester, died, and Dunstan seems to have chosen Elphir to replace him. As Bishop of Winchester, Elphir played his part in the ongoing church reforms, continuing to carry out the programme of Dunstan and his own predecessor, Ethelwold. He would have been involved in founding new monasteries and developing old ones, trying to encourage foreign scholars and artists to come to Wessex, and encourage West Saxon lords to donate lands to the church. Ethelwold had begun a rebuilding of Winchester Cathedral and promoted the celebration of St. Swithun, a previous bishop of Winchester who became a popular figure of devotion in the area, and Elphir continued these projects. He rededicated the cathedral in 995 and also apparently installed a new organ. One of the things monks spent a lot of time doing was singing church services. Benedictine monks had at least eight services each day in which they sang psalms and other things, so music was an important part of the monastic reformation. Elphir's new organ was apparently a hit, or at least it was very loud. According to a life of St. Swithin, written around the time, and I quote, The sound of the organ makes so much clamour that men stop their ears with their hands, and the melody of the pipes is heard all over the city. As well as playing a leading role in the religious reforms, as Bishop of Winchester, Elphir also took his place as another of the leading men of the kingdom. And in that role, he would have been helping to deliberate on the issue which dominated the reign of King Uthelred the Unready, a new wave of Viking raids. Ethelred, the son of Dunstan's partner, Edgar the Peaceful, has a very bad rap in English history, standing up there alongside perhaps only King John in the top tier of useless kings. This reputation may be deserved, during his 35-year reign, the whole kingdom which his ancestors had worked so hard to build and strengthen since the death of Alfred was lost again to the Danes, and lost so badly that Ethelred's next four successors as King of England were Danes. Reading the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, it is clear that there was something not right going on, and that England did not seem to have the clear leadership needed to respond to the crisis. But it may well have just been bad luck. Ethelred's father saw a mostly peaceful reign with little Viking activity, 
which may explain why he had so much time to found monasteries. One perennial problem with Ethelred seems to have been his complete inability to control his nobles. At various points in the story, just when he's got a huge fleet together to fight off the next wave of Vikings, one of his commanders rebels and takes a third of the fleet with him, and the whole thing falls into disarray. This may well speak to Ethelred's inability as a politician and war leader. And these are pretty important failings in an med early medieval king whose main duties were to manage the nobles and lead the armies in war. Ethelred's failings as a politician are the reasons for his unfortunate nickname, which comes down to us today, Ethelred the Unready. In modern English, this makes him sound like a foolish man who was unprepared for his responsibilities. In fact, in Old English, unready meant ill-advised, as read was the word for advice, so he's Ethelred the Unready. This means that Ethelred's nickname was a pun on his actual name, which, which meant noble advice. So he was called noble advice, the badly advised. If we are to believe the nickname and understand that Ethelred did suffer from bad advisers, that might bring us to question Bishop Elfir's credentials as an advisor. But I suspect that this nickname was just a contemporary way of saying he was rubbish at being king. As noted, the main issue of the day was how to respond to the Viking raids, which were coming in increasing size and ferocity towards the end of the 10th century. There seems to have been two strategies to dealing with them. Number one, defeating them in battle, or number two, paying them tribute, known as Dane Geld, or Dane money, to make them go away. Alfred the Great had done a combination of these things, paying them when victory was impossible in order to buy time to build up better defences for next time. Ethelred tried both, but for whatever reason was not able to use the time bought to prepare for the next invasion. Bishop Elfir seems to have been one of the leaders who favoured the paying tribute option. In 991, a large Viking army, led by a man called Olaf Tryggvason, came to England and ravaged the countryside, winning a shattering victory over an English army at the Battle of Maldon in Essex. It was this defeat uh, after which Ethelred first paid a Danegeld. The chronicle tells us that Citric, then Archbishop, and Elfir were the ones who persuaded the king to offer peace terms and money. This does not seem to have worked well, as in 994, Olaf Tryggvason was back, this time at the head of an army along with Sven Forkbeard, the king of Denmark. They laid siege to London and ravaged Wessex. Again, Bishop Elfir pervaded the king to offer peace terms, and this time it was more successful. The historian Frank Stenton suggests that the English peace proposal was successful because the two Viking leaders fell out with each other. Olaf Tryggvason was Norse and Sven Forkbeard was Danish, and they both seem to have been rivals for the throne of Norway. Whatever the reason, a delegation led by Bishop Elfir offered peace terms and cash payment, which were accepted. Sven went back to Denmark, and Elfir brought Olaf to meet King Ethelred. They met just north of Winchester, and there some sort of ceremony took place where Olaf promised never to raid in England again, 
He was also confirmed into the Christian church by Bishop Elfir. Olaf had apparently already been baptised. We might start to build a picture of Elfir as a leader of the negotiation faction in Ethelred's court, in opposition to those nobles who wanted to resist by force. It might perhaps be seen as appeasement, just to pay the Vikings off, knowing from experience that they'll just come back year after year. But the English do not seem to have been very successful at fighting the Vikings off, so maybe this was the better course. The Vikings were determined to get what they wanted by raid or payment, and at least if they were paid Danegeld, they spared the walls of England's fortresses and the lives of its people. It might seem natural for a churchman to be on the side of peace, both from a moral point of view and also practically, because his unarmed monks and priests would have borne the brunt of much of the Vikings' raiding. But again, Elfir seems to have been a skilled politician, so maybe he was just realised that paying them off was the best option. The point about Elfir confirming Olaf is interesting. It is impossible to say that Elfir managed to convert Olaf in the time they spent together negotiating this treaty. For starters, Olaf was baptised already, so he was already officially a Christian convert. But at that time, baptism may not have meant very much to a Viking. It was around this time that the Vikings were first beginning to accept Christianity. Harold Bluetooth, who was Sven Forkbeard's father, was one of the first officially Christian kings in Scandinavia. But by the reign of Knut, Sven Forkbeard's son, Christianity was well established. So this is right around the time that the Vikings were starting to accept Christianity. It would have been quite usual for someone like Olaf to officially become a Christian as part of a treaty in order to please his Christian opponents. This would no doubt have involved conversations like someone with Elfir, but we cannot really talk in concrete terms of a sincere personal conversion at this time. While it would be tempting to say that Bishop Elfir, who seems to have been a talented negotiator and a compelling man, spent time with Olaf in the summer of 994 and brought him round to the faith as part of their peace talks, such a picture would be pure speculation. What we do know is that Olaf did not threaten England again. Frank Stenton again says that with this, he disappears from English history, and within a few months, he had entered on the expedition which ended with his establishment as King of Norway. However, Olaf's invasions in 991 and 994 are important because they mark a change in the style of Viking warfare in England. Since the invasions of Alfred's time, most Viking raids in England had been small and coordinated only for a single summer. A fleet would assemble, raid, and then separate and go home again, job done. From now on, fleets came together for several years and remained in England over the winter. This meant that they were there to conquer and settle, and that had disastrous consequences for the ability and will of the English to resist. Olaf may have gone for good, but the Vikings did not. The Chronicle reports that the Vikings raided the English coast almost every summer. It was around this time that Elfir was promoted to Archbishop of Canterbury, the top position in the English church. His appointment demonstrates the continued importance of the monastic revival in England, 
as he was the fourth of five monk bishops that King Ethelred appointed to Canterbury. Elfiech apparently brought with him from Winchester the head of St. Swithin to put on the high altar in Canterbury Cathedral and also introduced some new liturgical and artistic practices. As Archbishop, Elfiech promoted the cult of Dunstan, his illustrious predecessor, and commissioned a book of stories about his life. At that time, there was no official process recognising a saint as there is today. Rather, if a person was considered to have been holy enough in the area where they lived, people might start to commemorate them by celebrating their feast day, that is, the day they died or entered heaven, and trying to spread the word about them by writing poems and a life or biography which proved their saintliness. This is what Elfiech had been doing with Swithin in Winchester, and that's what he was doing for Dunstan now. We have only a few hints of what he did as Archbishop. He seems to have reintroduced the office of Archdeacon, a kind of middle manager between bishops and priests, and he was in regular attendance at Ethelred's court. In 1008, he and Wolfstan, the Archbishop of York, encouraged the king to hold a national council, which may have been some sort of anti-Viking summit. In 1007, more than ten years after his appointment to uh, Canterbury, Elfir travelled to Rome to receive his pallium from the Pope. This is an interesting detail that the Chronicle sees fit to report to us. At that time, archbishops needed to receive the symbols of their office from the Pope, specifically a staff and a pallium, a kind of scarf worn over the robes. Sometimes they were sent by the Pope, but it seems that it was common for new archbishops to travel to Rome to receive the pallium in person. I find it interesting that Elfir waited ten years to go. This tells us that perhaps there was quite a lot going on in England which demanded his immediate attention. Okay, back to the Vikings. In 1002, in a desperate attempt to try to solve the Viking problem, King Ethelred ordered the massacre of all Danes in England. This order was apparently almost impossible to carry out because some towns like York were majority Danish. But some massacres did take place, and notably among the victims was Brunhild, the sister of King Sven of Denmark. This massacre backfired spectacularly. It provoked the fury of Sven at the murder of his sister and his subjects, and provided the pretext for another full-scale invasion of England. Sven came to England the following year with a huge army and raided with reckless abandon. He received a warm welcome in the Danish parts of the country, and little or no resistance was offered by the hapless King Ethelred. He came again in 1006 and again in 1010, and on that occasion they stayed several years. Ethelred had a repeat of his previous failure to build a large fleet, when again one of the leaders rebelled and the fleet fell apart. In 1010 the Danes defeated an English army in battle, then had the run of the whole country. The king tried to raise resistance, but, as the Chronicle famously said, no county would stand beside another. In 1011, the king offered another payment in exchange for peace, which the Vikings took, but continued to raid anyway. And here we reach the climax of our story. In September 1011, the Danes besieged Canterbury, where today's hero Elfir was holed up. It seems that Elfir, 
who, as Archbishop, ran Canterbury Cathedral, had some sort of dispute with a certain Elfmar, who was abbot of St. Augustine's Abbey in Canterbury, the other big church in the city. The Chronicle tells us that Elfia had previously saved Elfmar's life, although does not go into details. Yet in spite of that, Elfmar betrayed Canterbury to the Danes and Archbishop Elfir with it, in apparent exchange for his own life. While Elfir was taken prisoner by the Danes, Elfmar was allowed to walk free. The Danes demanded a huge ransom for the city and their hostage to be paid by the following Easter. The money was eventually found, and a deputation of English nobles came to London to meet the Danes who were waiting for them at Greenwich. When the ransom was paid, the Danes demanded even more money for Archbishop Elfir himself. At this point, Elfir refused to allow any more money to be paid to ransom him. The sources disagree about his reasoning. The Chronicle seems to imply that he was nobly refusing to allow any public money to be wasted on his own account. But a contemporary German writer called Dietmar of Merseburg wrote that Elfir would have paid up had he had the necessary cash. He seems to have annoyed the Danes for refusing to pay, and on the 19th of April, 1012, he was brutally murdered in a drunken feast. I'll quote here from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. They overwhelmed him with bones and horns of oxen, and one of them smote him with an axe iron on the head, so that he sunk downwards with the blow, and his holy blood fell upon the earth, whilst his sacred soul was sent to the realm of God. A contemporary report tells that a Viking leader called Thorkel the Tall, who would later defect to the English, attempted to save Elfir from the mob, about to kill him, by offering everything he owned except for his ship in exchange for Elfir's life. Some sources record that the final blow, with the back of an axe, was delivered as an act of kindness by a Christian convert, known only as Thrum. So, what is Elfir doing in this podcast? This is the section where, at the end of each episode, we look into the saint's legacy and explain why they were considered a saint. As I said earlier, medieval saints often had a precarious route to sainthood, starting with a local following and then becoming more established, and this means they often have quite an interesting history after death. Elfir was no exception to this. The day after his death, his body was carried to London and buried at St. Paul's Cathedral, which was then called Eastminster. He quickly became popular in Canterbury and elsewhere. All churches liked to have local saintly heroes, and Elphir was quickly celebrated as one of those. One of the classic ways to be guaranteed sainthood was to die as a Christian martyr, and it seemed to many at the time that he was killed by a bunch of pagan Danes, he fit into that category pretty uncontroversially. The chaos of Ethelred's reign continued, and within four years of his death, England was resoundingly conquered by Canute the Great, son of Sven Forkbeard, who reigned for over 20 years as King of Denmark, Norway, and England. Canute was a devout Christian, 
and seems to have found the existence of a popular local saint at Canterbury, martyred under the auspices of his own father, rather embarrassing. Canute responded by becoming Elfir's most enthusiastic cheerleader, moving his body back to Canterbury Cathedral and placing his relics at the north side of the altar. The cult of Elfir was therefore popular in Scandinavia long into the Middle Ages, thanks to the support of Knut. The crucial stage in Elfir's path to official sainthood came in 1066 when the Normans came to England. William the Conqueror installed his chief religious advisor, Lanfranc of Beck, as Archbishop of Canterbury. Lanfranc took church reform very seriously and was determined to bring the English church properly into line. He was particularly unimpressed with the wide array of local saints about whom the English were very enthusiastic. The Normans did quite a lot to suppress many popular English saints, and Elfir was almost among those cast out. Lanfranc was sceptical of the claim that Elfir had died as a martyr because he had been killed for refusing to pay a ransom. However, help was at hand in the person of Anselm, the leading theologian in Western Europe. Anselm argued that Elfir had died as a martyr for justice, and therefore Christian truth, and should be considered a martyr and saint. Lanfranc was satisfied, and commissioned his Anglo-Saxon precentor and secretary, Osborne of Canterbury, to write up the necessary documents to confirm Elfir's saintliness, that is, a biography, or life of the saint, and a passion narrative, or a story about how he died. Osborne added many details that were not in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, including that the translation of his bones, that is, the removal of his bones from St Paul's to Canterbury, was not a happy occasion, but had to be done in the dead of night, akin to King David fetching the Ark of the Covenant. Osborne is known, however, as a prolific rather than an accurate historical writer. Elfirth's reputation remained high throughout the Middle Ages. At Canterbury, he continued to be popular along with St Dunstan, the two best reminders of the Anglo-Saxon past. When the cathedral was restored in the 1170s, the two were placed on either side of the altar. Along with Dunstan and St Augustine, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, Elfir was the only other pre-conquest holder of that office to be maintained as a saint by the early Normans. He was the first Archbishop of Canterbury to meet a violent end, but he would not be the last, and his example would inspire others. It is reported that before his own martyrdom, Thomas Becket prayed to Elfir at the high altar in Canterbury Cathedral, where he himself was cut down. But that's a story for another time. Thanks for listening to the story of St. Elphir and King Ethelred, and this episode of Saintly Progress. If you enjoyed it, please do consider subscribing and leaving us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. If you'd like to get in touch, you can send me an email at saintlyprogress at gmail.com. Tune in next time where we'll be talking about St. Mark the Evangelist, the possibly mythical author of the earliest account of the life of Jesus Christ. Until then, thanks for listening, and see you next time.